Hello, and welcome to Let Him Roar Again. Today with me, I have Simon Ward. Simon Ward is an actor, psychologist, and educator based in Sydney, Australia. He's trained as an actor here in Sydney and also trained in teaching voice at the Royal Academy of Music in London. Simon has performed in musical theatre, plays, opera, and cabaret all over the world, on stage in New York, London's West End, and throughout Australia. He's directed shows for the Sydney, Adelaide and Melbourne Fringe Festival. He also holds four psychology degrees. Simon's is the first voice you hear on Let Him Roar Again. Welcome, Simon. Hello. Good morning. Good morning, Amy Perry. A delight and a joy to be with you. So there are a few things I want to talk to you about today and we'll release those as two-part interviews. So the, for the first interview today we'll talk about voice and Shakespeare now you're obviously very well qualified to talk about this in teaching voice uh, but also as an actor but let's go back to Shakespeare for a minute can you tell me about a moment you were really struck by Shakespeare or his plays I can and it was so hard finding one that I've narrowed it down to two so the (laughs) um the first two things that really got me. I had a double cassette, remember cassettes, cassette mm. tape of the Reduced Shakespeare Company radio show. Now, the Reduced Shakespeare Company, for uh, listeners at home, uh, are the, the, it started in 1981 in Canada, I think, and they wrote the complete works of William Shakespeare in 90 minutes abridged, I think it's called, and the complete Bible abridged and the complete history of America abridged. And, and there, there not only was, I, mean, I had parents were teachers, mum was an English teacher, so we had Shakespeare around and there was a, a portrait of him. I'm like, oh, who's that weird bald guy? <laughs> um, but I remember thinking this is funny and amazing and, oh, it's, it's accessible. And then I saw a movie by Kenneth Branagh in 95, Kenneth Branagh's Four Hour Hamlet. Was that 95, 96, uh, we- something like that? We were talking about this with Shanri just recently, and I think he said 97, somewhere 97, around that yes. late 90s. It was 97 because they walked all the year 11s up to the Hornsby Odious Cinema and your feet stuck to the carpet. And that was that was quality entertainment in those days. <laughs> and they showed a film as well. They didn't just walk us to a cinema where your feet stuck <laughs> to the carpet. And in the same year, he wrote a little indie film called A Midwinter's Tale, which is my favourite film of all time because it's about a group of actors putting on Hamlet at Christmas. And it's got Jennifer Saunders in it and Joan Collins and um, Richard Bryars and uh, Julia Sawala and uh, Michael Maloney and John Sessions. Amazing, 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 Celia Imri, amazing people. And I love that because it was hysterically funny and it was my about actors, which I loved, mm. and it was about the totally over-the-top British theatre, which I loved, and the Shakespeare in it, the bits from Hamlet, were so moving, I cry every time. Mm-hmm. And so I, I watched that from, at the tender age of 16 or 17 when it came out, and I remember thinking this is amazing that the Shakespeare, which was interwoven into their lives and illustrated through the putting on this play, was so... Um, uh, funny and deep and connected and so that I love that and the, and the third one sorry just the third was um is it oh is it Peter oh who who directed the McKellen Judy Dench Macbeth the TV was that Trevor Nunn Peter Brook 
One of those. Um, I'm sorry, I don't know. In the 70s, you can get it on YouTube, and Judy Dench's speech as Lady Macbeth Mm. doing the out-out dance spot bit, and that was searing. Like, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that what you're talking about there seems to be about the actors themselves and and the direction. So it's about the production. And yeah. that's what makes us feel something, you know, yeah. having a really good, solid inter- introduction to a piece that is directed well seems to make all the difference. Yes, absolutely. You've trained both here and in London and you're talking there about lots of English actors. Um, mm. You now also train tertiary students here in Australia and present at conferences internationally. So your breadth of understanding of Shakespeare and acting across the world is really quite remarkable. What do you think is the difference between the systems of training around the world, particularly as it relates to Shakespeare? The importance placed on the text or the verse Hmm. and whether they lead with that as a and that becomes the the bedrock upon which the rest is built or whether that's oh we're going to do a bit on heightened verse okay we've done that okay now let's get into the emotional stuff and there seems to be i mean a lot of this is related to different styles of acting craft and how those are taught but there's a gen the general division i'd i'd suggest is more that the uk more European tradition is uh, very heavily text-based, um, whereas the American one is more um, what's the emotion, the meaning, the that kind of thing. And Australia, because we're a hybrid of both, although more and more attached to America now than we were to Britain, but we're kind of in this weird, you know, blur between. Mm-hmm. Um, Depends on the director, depends on the company, I guess. Um, so some you'll get some teachers in some drama schools who are, right, we sit down, we're going to go with the text. What is this? What, why is this letter here? What does this mean? What is this scansion? What is the beat? What is it? And the other people go, chuck all that out. Right, now, squint, what's the general gist? Okay, um, Kate hates, um, what's his face in The Taming of the Shrew? Uh, just, so just, just shout, just shout at him. Go for it, just shout, do some shouting. And it's... So I think, so for me, it's where the, the focus rests. Is it the text or is it the emotion and the text adds to it or vice versa? Mm, um, it's interesting to think about a more global approach and it depending on the teacher. Early in our journey with Shakespeare as an Australian text, we had a review, I guess, of sorts of how to make Australian theatre better and the outcome of that was that we needed to send all our actors to the RSC in London so that they could be trained to do it properly. Um, and to my mind, that's really strange that we would find an Australian voice by copying someone else's. Do you think that there's still a sense that um, of hierarchy? It's a, it's, it's a very good question. I think it comes down to two things. Um, about is an accent an identity mm. and is a uh, and is the way you say the text the same as the accent in which you say it 
unpack that a little to bit. To be or not to be, that is the question. But to be or not to be, that is the question. To be or not to be, that is the question, right? So in the UK, the class hierarchical system is attached to worth and value. Mm. Um, in America, not so much. Different parts of Europe, depending which country you're in. Asia, it is quite class-based, depending which country you're in. Australia, yes and no, because mm -hmm. we have this weird, um, I'm a step away from being a convict, but that's not really my identity, but also we've got to crash it down, but also we have to build it up, but also no, but what is the, you know, all that kind of stuff. And what voice do you use? And do you use a mid-Atlantic, that lovely phrase, or a mid-Pacific, I've heard, as a, as a concept for a something which is vaguely not quite English, not quite Australian, not quite American. I don't know what that sounds like, frankly. I think. Does I, I that don't know. sound like Australian? <laughs> I think it sounds like, I think it like, I don't know. I, I, someone always said you can tell what, how um, approaches to accents by listening to uh, shampoo ads and insurance ads on TV because the voices they use tend to be the, the better the, the the better educated, I'm using listeners at home, I'm using little rabbit ears in the air here to indicate inverted commas. Um, but I think the big thing is in the UK, there's such an, um, a worth and a value about the accent you use that, you know, of course, we all know the stories about, you know, in the 40s and 50s, you trained your regional accent out of yourself. Mm. Um, and now, of course, regional accents are pre preferable. And so I think it'll rest down to it. And I think there was a lot of um, Cicely Berry's work early was about what well, you can have anyone. What, what, why are we hiding the Yorkshire accent? For mm. What I don't understand. And so in one sense, so for Australia, because there's so, um, is our accent an identity? Yes and no, because there are stylistic markers and all that kind of stuff. But also an accent isn't a character necessarily but it can be a stereotype very quickly. And sometimes that's helpful because if you want to, you know, bring that out for a bit of fun, if you're, if you're uh, I don't know, the mechanicals, for instance, if you wanted to make them, you know, the Dapto players, mm. right, which is a, a suburb of Sydney, listeners, um, <laughs> the, then that could be a, an identity marker or a, or a status marker. So I think there's, there's still a discussion. My big thing about when um, about the whole go to the RSC and learn it properly, I think it comes down to separating out your approach to the text versus your approach to your voice. And, and, and if your voice becomes uh, valued in terms of what your accent is, so your accent, there are preferred ones or your higher status or your, your more valued or that kind of stuff, then no, I think that's entirely wrong and incorrect and we have to battle against that but at the same time you in terms of training we have to be open to as many different speech patterns as possible so i suppose that's where i'd split it like if you go to the rsc great because they'll, they'll teach you about the text and the verse and the and all of that kind of stuff which is wonderful so do it in your own voice and then do it in as many different accents regional dialects characters octaves as you can because the otherwise if your identity is your accent then every character you ever play will be uh, a value judgment. Do you think then that uh, the way that we train actors 
needs to shift or change. I know that many, many moons ago when I was doing my acting training, there was a lot of emphasis on uh, the mechanics of the voice and how to manipulate those to create different sounds, which is fabulous because you can then utilise that in any voice you wish to create. But I think there was still an emphasis that it's important that we pronounce our T's and that we're a little more rounded on stage. I don't know how much of that is about carrying a voice on stage and what actually cuts through to an audience and how much is a value system. Do you think actors are trained the same way now? Is that important? I think um, I... It is important, absolutely, because at the end of the day, you have to be heard and understood. And beyond anything else, one of the the problems with current TV acting, Mm. this will be a bit controversial, hopefully, um, particularly if it's a BBC costume drama, um, everyone's like, it's really soft and the vision's really kind of, you know, really sure and okay. And that's seen as very internal and intense and preferred, but it's a stylistic marker. It's not, yeah, and it's, I guess it's, it's just, it's a fad as it is now, as twas, you know, John Gill got on the radio in the 1940s, you know, like it's it's a stylistic marker and we'll, there'll be another one coming up in another 10, 15 years and we'll, we'll ride that one. But the big thing um, for voices is that um, the training of them and the danger at the moment is that because more and more shows are using amplification using microphones mm. so it's coming to the point where it's it's quite common to find a, sh- a play that is mic'd now that where where either they're wearing they're micing the stage or they're actually wearing wig mics or costume costume mics um and the great issue with that is that um not all but quite a few actors get lazy i'm going to use that word deliberately um, and by that, what I mean is there are certain things from voice science that we know happen when you say T. So the tongue goes into a particular place. The, the, the palate does a certain thing. There's a certain release of breath. There's a certain vocal fold closure. There's a certain length of um, upper pharyngeal tract tension. And in order for that T to carry um, uh, an, an acoustic space on that particular, I think it's about either between 1.8 to 2.4 kilohertz resonance to get to the back, you have to do a certain thing with your face, facial and voice muscles in order for it to be heard. Now that is something that you have to learn in the way that if you learn the electric guitar, you can't avoid playing a G major chord because at some point you're going to play let it be in, in that key and you're going to have to play a G major chord. And, and it doesn't mean that you are an arrogant guitar player or that you're a horrible person that wants to bring down the patriarchy or that you detest all things that came before, you know, 2004 or whatever. It's, but because it's a voice and therefore voice is about worth and part of us and all of that stuff. Um, I think act, the, the training of acting is getting further away from good diction to natural. I'm using little bunny as listeners um, because the, the natural diction is really lovely when I'm sitting next to someone in a cafe. Mm. But if I make that cafe full of people, I will change how I speak so that I so that the other person can hear me. We do this naturally every day. 
with, with, with our families. We do this every single day. We do it with our pets. Your voice when you address your dog is not the same as when you address your husband. Maybe. So I don't know. Hope right? so. <laughs> Hope so. so. So why has it suddenly become a value issue when we're doing teaching actors how to do it? So I think the, um, the necessity of training good vocal health based on good voice science, where there isn't an aesthetic bias, there's a science and health bias. Mm. And the, the, the difference with the training without an aesthetic bias means that it doesn't matter what your accent, class, background, level of education, all of those things that, that historically have been associated with voice, what, with, what those are, um, if you can be heard and understood and do it efficiently and healthily and consistently and have voice on demand, great. Hmm. Is that difficult, though, with an ochre Australian accent where you start to lose the T's? Uh, how do you make an accent like that carry across a whole theatre? Um, there are certain uh, bonuses in the Australian accent. So one of the things about the Australian accent is that it's a little bit stereotypically, um, so if you're sort of north of Adelaide, you're a little bit more nasal, um, which means that your area of the sphincter is a little bit narrower in the space in your vocal tract. Um, don't worry about these terms, listeners, there isn't a test. Yes, there is. Um, <laughs> so it means that my voice will carry a little more. Mom, mom. Mm. Okay. As, um, and so in terms of projection, using the bunny hairs again, listeners, um, it will carry a little more easily. But that also has some consequences because that's our vocal habit with the accent, which also carries certain meanings for Australian audiences. So how do I get that projection without necessarily that nasality? Well, that's a technical thing. So there are, so with the Australian accent, um, it's like the, the output, we all know the upward inflection at the end of a sentence. You know, when we're talking, how are you? Yeah, yeah, that one. So no matter what I say, and I love listening to interviews with sports people after the match, and all of them need a, a bit of a sit down with a good voice coach because they're not really sure if they actually won. Um, and and it's not their fault because which that's, we're that's just soaking, we're marinated, yeah, we're marinated in it. Hmm. And so I think once you, there's a lot to be said for someone designing a course, course that's called um, the Australian voice and accent, and then digging into the history of it, where it comes from. There's a great John Clark doco that was on the ABC about 10 years ago about that, um, finding the Australian voice, I think it's called, um, and going, okay, so well, now we know this, what bits do you want to keep and when? And then using it like you would use different ingredients from your spice rack. You don't hurl the spice rack at the audience. Well, not unless you're a Barry Kosky production. And then you have <laughs> reference there to an Australian director, listen. Um, you have, you select. And the more your knowledge grows, the more careful you are in your selection and the more effective your use of a particular thing is. So if I wanted to drop every single T and use a D instead, there are certain technical things I would do with the distance between the, my tongue and the roof of my mouth to make sure that D sound carried a little more and I would do different things with my breath and different, you know. So there's, there are ways of doing it that I think if once you divorce it from, oh, I don't want to be seen as either knowing too much or not knowing enough, 
it's it's the same technical exercise as learning the saxophone or playing the guitar or playing the violin or something. Mm. It's that thinking that our accent is somehow lesser um, mm. and whether or not that's true and do we need to train it out of people? I think you're saying perhaps not. Perhaps it's about learning that science and how to use it with your natural voice as much as it is about um oh absolutely yeah because they're going to yeah because um we're all using your natural voice um there's a model of voice teaching called estel based by on research by a lady called uh, joe dr joe estel joe estel and she had a thing called everybody has a beautiful voice hmm. and it's the same with uh in patty rodenberg's book and cicely berry's book and um uh, uh, uh what's the name it's up there on my shelf uh, janice chapman's book wonderful wonderful voice coaches and teachers all of whom say there is there is this myth of a beautiful voice or a good voice or a mm. right voice and um everyone has a beautiful voice absolutely everyone not everybody knows how to use it in a healthy consistent way but that doesn't but training them to do that does not mean taking away the essence of that person or the essence of their sound or accent it says okay um so I have this weird hybrid British Australian accent thing happening. Unless I'm in England, and the first two days when I arrive in England, I go a little bit more Australian because I, want, yeah. I don't want people to confuse me. Right? <laughs> and then I come over here and goes, "Gee, gee, you sound British, Simon. What are you talking about?" And so that's that's what I that but that's what I do because mm -hmm. I yeah. So I think yeah, you're right. I think there's a lot of um. A big discussion needs to happen in every single drama course and, and vocal academy, including music courses as well, mm. um, about, okay, when we're making sound, how is that related to our worth and who we are? Mm. And what is our identity attached to that? Um, it will always be a little bit attached to that because it's how I express what's inside me. But where everybody has a story of being told to be quiet when they didn't want to be or wanting to cry mm. but not being allowed to mm. or being told by a teacher that they were too loud, particularly if you're female, right, and you're only allowed to be loud under certain emotional conditions. Yes. Right? And then all of a sudden, the, the joy we were playing with a friend's one-year-old the other day, and they were loud, partly because the larynx is up at the level of the back of your throat, the back of your mouth, so you're much louder. And you will know this, you can, you know, your kids can stop shopping centers, right? With their, yes. yeah. yeah. And then as adult actors, we all go, oh, I wish I could do that. I wish I could do that. Mm. The, um, but the, when you separate out, when you give someone the freedom to say, hey, just make whatever sound, it's fantastic. I'm never going to say the word shush. Shush should be banned. Mm. I think teachers, uh, teachers, parents should be fined automatically off their credit card every time they say shush or be quiet or use your inside voice because mm. because it doesn't actually teach the, the person making the noise anything about that noise or how to regulate it or how to control it or what to do with it apart from oh i'm bad because i made the noise not the noise is bad but i'm bad because i made this bad noise also why is the noise bad like just as, as a philosophical question who decided that right and but there are certain things like if you're on a stage, the diction you have will be slightly different to if you're playing a, you know, whatever the, you know, like an 1800 seater is going to be different to your, your on a film set hmm. or a TV set. And so obviously the skill level has to be different. The danger at the moment is that 
acoustic voicing, um, voicing without microphones is not trained or it's common. It's very difficult or it's common. That was a long answer. I'm so sorry. No, no, long answers are fine. Um, there's a conundrum there, I think, for teachers uh, and maybe even directors in the rehearsal room in that by telling people to shush, we actually create some kind of um, nervousness or anxiety about the sounds that we make. And if you think about uh, people like Kristen Linkladder, she talks about mm. not wanting too much of the rounded consonants and things and needing mm. to, that that becomes monotone and that we need to free the full range of the voice. So yes. I think there's an anxiety related to that if we're um, lessening the range in day-to-day life or in the drama classroom, um, which is my context particularly. Mm. But alongside that is the need for all voices to be heard or the functional need uh, for the decibel level not to be so loud in a year eight drama classroom that you actually can't hear yourself think anymore. So how do we yes. find that line? Because I think in, in shushing, we're actually creating the former problem a little bit more, that nervousness about what our voices sound like. How do we then create range or variety in our voices when we've been asked not to but how yes. do we in a rehearsal room or in a classroom how can you walk that line use your voice the way you want your students to mm. so um uh most teachers who have lasted more than you know 10 minutes in a year eight drama class and 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 may and may god bless you all because that's <laughs> not an environment into which i wish to step without you know a tank or some form of body Bodyguard, um, is that you know that the, the power of being firm or loud-ish and then going really, really quiet, mm. really suddenly. Mm-hmm. And so you're using all of the different vocal range that you want them to then develop in order to maintain control of the class. Because the first three years of our lives as little babies, it's all tone and volume. It's not learning language. We're absorbing language and we're developing speech structures, but we learn meaning and from tone and volume. And and parents do as well. You have to know which after, you know, the first year is going, okay, is that the hungry cry? Is it the angry cry? Is it the I'm just about to go to the toilet cry? Is it the I have no idea? I'm just going to feed the thing and hope it works cry. And, and so we learn and we respond back and forth as babies using tone and volume. And when you listen to um, kids programs, like I'm thinking, you know, place called Bluey, you know, Sesame Street, um, the, and this links to some of the psychology stuff we'll do in part two, folks, part two listeners, stay tuned. Um, The vocal prosody, so that pitch and range of your voice um, has direct influences on your uh, emotional brain and whether you feel anxious or not. And so the range, the pitch range of the characters in Louis or the character or the voices and how they use their, their tone and their volume and how they use their range actually calms your limbic, it'll, it calms your different circuitry in your body. And so when you're in front of the year eight drama class, the problem with shush is that it has a value to it. Say any other word, say umbrella. Why say shush, right? Like, um, say, uh, my favourite one is um, uh, a friend of mine who uses pop stars' names as swear words, <laughs> right? So 
you, if you stab your toe, you just go, oh, Justin Timberlake. And, <laughs> you know, right? and if it's really, really, you know, if it's really bad, it might be a Christina Aguilera moment. And, but because the, uh, and as a therapist, when I have families that are arguing, I print out recipes from the Women's Weekly and I give them to them. And I say, you have to argue, but you can only use the lines from this recipe. Mm. Take five, 100 grams of flour and put it in a bowl or oh, add yeast. Oh, right. And you get, you get the meaning because after all, the big arguments in families aren't about world peace and third world debt. They're about who left the mug on the sink. Yeah. Right. Or the sock in the hallway because it's about the tone and the volume. And I, so that's, um, so you can use your, so a part of it is the, the actual, the, um, the, the vocab, the lexicon changing but from a teaching point of view using the your two octave vocal range and pitch range and dynamic range strategically like you want them to develop their ability to do voices and stuff they're always they're going to be year eight and they're going to do what every kid that gets given a set of drums in year eight does and you bash the hell out of it that's what they're going to do um yeah do you think that brings us back to Shakespeare then in terms of understanding every word? Um, we know there are words in there that just aren't used anymore. At what yeah. point does it become more about tone and variety and getting a message across vocally than it is about the words themselves? Um, ideally, one informs the other and the other informs the other. And it's, um, it's like, is the area of a door more to do with the width than the height? And well, you have to say, well, it's 100% of both. Um, and I think with, uh, with Shakespeare, I think then it comes back to different people are going to find a way in more easily using one or the other of those. So for some people, the sound of going, blue wind and crack your cheeks, rage, blow, drown the roosters and whatever it is, drown the cocks and and <laughs> and forever I shall come to Dunsinane and whatever the line is. So, um, and they'll love that, that big. So give them Richard Burton, right? Or give them, give them someone who is evocatively when they, right? Or so other people are like, that just uh, doesn't sit, but I really like intense text. So show them, I don't know, Rory, well, you can't get Rory Kinnear's Hamlet anymore, but like show them, um, you know, someone who, a TV production, which is really close up and intense and whispered. Mm. Mm. Um, the Shakespeare Republic the, has good um, film versions of a lot of, a lot of the soliloquies. Um, oh, great. Yeah, yeah Which fantastic. allows you to have that intensity of film still linked to the language, yeah. Yeah. So for, I think it comes, there's a lot of... Um, uh, you know, there are the scientists and the hippies, right? And the, some of us are scientists and some of us are hippies and we're going to step into it in a particular way. But the thing is at the end, we're, we both end up being both because you can't, um, yeah. So I think that kind of kind of combinedness, I guess, is sort of what I'm keen on. The whole, uh, like um, Jonathan Miller's production of Taming of the Shrew, John Cleese, which um, in... I'm going to say late 70s, something like that. John Cleese didn't want to do it. And Jonathan Miller said, I will just say the line. It doesn't matter about the, the, the poetry or the text. Just, just, just say the line. So he delivers this speech. And there's a clip of John Cleese delivering this speech, basically yawning through it. 
and you don't really get many of the words, you get the meaning, you get enough of the words to signal it, um, but you don't get the, the, the text as well. When you, and for me, I'm like, okay, I totally appreciate it. And it's very funny ears again, people, naturalistic, whatever that means. Um, but the, so for me, that's not a style I particularly have an emotional kick to. Hmm. Seeing someone who can use the text and bounce off it and then put that naturalistic form of a word range inside the text because there are there are uh, yeah so i think there's there's a lot i don't think it has to be a choice and i think there's a bit of an idea that says that we overload students if we do both that you know because we know do we talk about metaphor all day or do we talk about the iambic pentameter all day or do we get them skipping around the room um galloping uh, like horses for yes yeah yeah. But at some point there's a requirement on the actor to be able to access both of those approaches for when yeah. one fails, right? Yes. Different characters are going to require different um, yeah. approaches. Yeah. Yes. If we come back to that question that I keep asking, why Shakespeare? I want to see if you can answer that, not just generally, um, because I think it's established that he has some worth, but why Shakespeare is part of acting training? I know it was a semester in the middle of mine um, and the gorgeous, amazing Arnie Nimi taught me Shakespeare and I think that's probably um, the crux of why Shakespeare for me personally, but why Shakespeare as part of acting training? Why do we learn Shakespeare? What is it that we cover in our study of Shakespeare as actors that isn't covered by our study of Stanislavski or any of the other greats in the canon. There's my bunny ears, greats in the canon. <laughs> um, the, it's uh, because Shakespeare, unlike any other dramatist, is a perfect blend of uh, two things, technique and theme, human theme, human themes i know that talking about universal human experience and stuff is, is not um uh, as common talk anymore using the word universal but um and yet every single country in the world has productions of shakespeare so you know they hope but so it's a but it's a perfect blend so the technical things vocal vocal technique emotional physical cognitive the text the character the relationships every every unit you do in an acting shows up in Shakespeare. Mm. I have yet to, to look through the syllabus of any acting course and not be able to go, there's a Shakespeare thing that you could show with that. Oh, okay, yeah, that's linked to this. Yeah, and and I'm, I'm willing to, you know, eat a page of my collected works of Shakespeare if anyone can find me a topic that doesn't actually link to something in Shakespeare because it's, it's the... So from a technical learning point of view, and perhaps this is why sometimes doing it with school students is, is trickier, but when you're with people who have chosen to do to learn the craft, old-fashioned word of acting, technically it gives you everything. I mean, you never run out of breath if you follow the scansion in Shakespeare. You will never run out of breath. If actors run out of breath on stage doing Shakespeare. I know they're not doing the saying the scansion the way it's meant to be said. I said oh, meant to be said. Yes, meant to be said. <laughs> I'm not talking about the meaning they give it. That's a different conversation. But in terms of how they vocally and athletically manage it and the human experience. 
I mean, you, lots of other writers give you phenomenally deep human experiences, and many of which are more modern and more accessible to students now. However, when you pair away the Italian names and the you know references to the feudal structure or whatever it is, and you say, okay, well, these are two people and they met here and this one didn't know that they were the person who they think they are and they're just continuing to pretend it. Have you ever pretended to be someone you're not? All the time. All the time. All the time. Well, you know, as you know, as Chesterton says, we have many pers- as many personalities as we have friends. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's why Shakespeare. So for me, um, yes, that's that's why Shakespeare because it covers it covers everything, um, and everything can be elaborated from it. I think for me that's really important because although we hold Shakespeare out as a separate unit. Um, in schools, in acting training, I think even with audiences and theatre companies, I think that if we can weave some of that work of Shakespeare through our other units, so uh, when we look at a duologue for Stanislavski, why aren't we looking at a Shakespearean duologue? Uh, We can take some of the mystique out of that because it can be explored in all of those ways. So that will be one of my projects going forward with Ledinburgh again is to to make sure that it's woven in in ways that are not ah, Shakespeare. <laughs> that's such a good point. And I, 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 it's only struck me as you said it. That's absolutely right. Absolutely right. Because when you do, let's still do a duologue and then you say the word Shakespeare or you're doing Stanislavski or a Chekhov or a, or a Meisner or an Adler or whatever, and you go, well, why aren't we doing duologues? Because they're well-written, they're snappy. Um, they don't have to subscribe to buy the text, so it's True. cheaper for the students. <laughs> yeah. But also, it gives you everything. Mm. And again, as you say, it detox. Well, you didn't use the word detox, but it, it demystifies mm. um, and takes that that yeah that that weird thing that says, "Oh, we are now doing Shakespeare." That's right. Yeah. And it's going to take us six months, or it's going to take us a term to unlock yeah. Shakespeare. Yes, we find the key. I was like, what? No, no, No. yes. We never will. And that's the beauty, right, because there's a new key every time we look at it from a different lens or at a different age, you know, going back to plays that I read 20 years ago, I bring something totally different to it. Yeah, yeah, that's so fascinating. That's wonderful. It's so wonderful. We're going to finish off this first interview with, a recording from what you did for, for the <laughs> intro to this show. We had so much fun in my household listening to the different versions. So as part of this, Simon, you know that I asked you to give us a couple of different accents because you're such a specialist in switching from one to the other. Um, and I wasn't quite sure what I wanted. I knew I wanted an Australian flavour, but I didn't know if I would hear that whether that would be right so you tried a few and as a special treat we're going to finish the episode with one of those or maybe a few of those Um, (laughs) and again my absolute thanks for the skill that you bring to a job like that um, and just drop it in and the joy that we've found in listening to those different versions so I hope that uh, listeners will get some of that joy too as we play those You've been listening to Let Him Roar Again, a podcast recorded by Amy Perry amid the tall blue gums of Darug country. 
Performance of Bottom's Lines from A Midsummer Night's Dream by the phenomenal Simon Ward. Stay up to date by visiting lethimroaragain.com. Let me play the lion too. I'll roar that I will do any man's heart good to hear me. I will roar that I will make the Duke say, Let him roar again. Let him roar again.